0: Um, So today is the first of our new series looking at the person of Jesus in the light of the incarnation, that's uh, Jesus coming as a a baby at Christmas and what happened at Easter and uh, Sarah's going to look at Israel's expectation of a Messiah and why many of them missed Jesus for who he was and I think there's a a lesson for us in there as well that um, yeah, I think we need humility to to understand what God is doing, and um, yeah, in case we miss it, which I certainly don't want to miss, what God is doing. So, uh, I'll invite Raymond to come up, and she's going to read um, Isaiah 40 and Luke chapter four. I'll, I'll be all right once I get open. Okay, there's there's two readings today. Firstly, I'll read from Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, and then from 28 to 31, and then from Luke 4, chapter 4, verses 14 to
1: 21.
0: Comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain." And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of them the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up upon the high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He will not go tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And this next reading is from Luke chapter 4, 14 to 21. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. (coughs) Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing.
1: see you all. I'm just warning you, my back has not been great this week, and so I may need to sit down halfway through, but I'm sure that's fine. We can just do a, a stool-style talk. <laughs> um, the question of God's faithfulness is one that has been often is often on our minds as Christians, and I'm sure in light of the recent weeks, uh, events both here and around the world, many of us have been asking, God, where are you? How, when are you going to fulfil your promise to return and how bad does this world have to get before you return? Both in New Zealand and on the global stage we are experiencing despair in multiple areas. And I'm not wanting to drag us back to a place of lament but I'm just going to put a few slides up for reflection. A friend who came to you and said, Is your God really faithful? Does he care? Has he forgotten you in this world? Has he forgotten this world? Is he more powerful than the extreme terrorist attacks? Is he more powerful than the Mexican drug lords who are shipping methamphetamine to our country by the ton? Is he more powerful than the environmental factors that are going on? More powerful than the causes of our massively high suicide rates? Is he more powerful than the situation you're facing in your life? How would you respond? I know sometimes I struggle to put words. And sometimes I feel on the darkest days, the news is so depressing and I wonder, God, where are you? Would you come back soon? Are you still faithful? Are you, have you forgotten us? Are you the strongest? In my head I know it, but sometimes in my heart I question. <clears throat> And i ask these questions today because we're kicking off into a new series on the person of Jesus, which is going to take us up to Easter, <clears throat> and in light of the Easter story, we're going to ask why was he such a big deal, and why was he so important? For those of us who have grown up in Christian environments, we get pretty blase, I think, about Jesus sometimes. We kind of forget the magnitude of who he was and what he did. And many others who haven't grown up in a Christian background often just see him as a prophet, a historical figure who probably did a few good things in the world, and then got killed by his own people, which is a pretty sad story. Uh, So specifically, we're going to look at at how Jesus came to fulfill a plan, and uh, it wasn't a plan B, it was God's plan, and it didn't fail, but it actually achieved exactly what it was meant to do. And we'll look at how many early believers were convinced to follow Jesus based on what they read in the scriptures of the Torah and the prophets, the wisdom literature like the Psalms. We're going to look at some of those today, about what they foretold about a coming Messiah. And we are also going to look at why some of them, or many of them, didn't actually recognize Jesus when he did come. And we hope that this series will give you a greater appreciation of who Jesus is and who he was when he walked on the the earth. And see that actually God is in control of the big story And that we're all part of this big story So I started off a moment ago asking where is God in these dire situations Sometimes we question God's faithfulness in our lives and, and the lives of those around us And Jesus entered a scattered, persecuted and disheartened Israel we were actually wrestling with the very same questions of God's faithfulness 2,000 years ago Is God really stronger than the Roman government? Does He care, or has He forgotten about us? We haven't heard from Him for four hundred years, at least. Is He still the same faithful God as Moses, Abraham, Jacob, our ancestors? And this afternoon, we're going to look at Israel's expectations for a savior and explore who and what they were expecting. Now, why do we care about what they were expecting? Well. It helps us to understand a few things. Oh, these were the questions I was supposed to put up before, which I just asked you. Were pointing out there, don't know. Um, it helps us to understand a few things. It helps us to understand why they were questioning is God faithful? Uh, and, and asking about God's supremacy over the other nations. And secondly, when we understand the, their expectations of the Messiah, it helps us to understand why they spit on him and rejected him and nailed him to a cross. With us, we've got some hindsight, and we can go, oh, can't you see it? Can't you look in the scriptures? But for them, a lot of them were confused, and a lot of them, even John the Baptist got a bit confused as to who Jesus was at times. If they were so desperate for the Saviour to come, why? Why did they crucify him? So knowing their expectations helps us understand their actions. And um, But before we do those two things, we have to do two first things. We have to recap it few critical parts of their story I'm not going to tell you the whole Old Testament story that would take us uh, quite a while <clears throat> but their history generated their expectations their history um, well actually uh, history is actually a very important thing and I never used to believe this because my mother is a history teacher and I purposely never ever took a history class but then I became enlightened and I realised history was very important and it's actually amazing what history illuminates uh, in your own life and in the lives of in, in your future. So anyway, look, looking at Israel's story helps us to understand where the expectations came from. And then with a bit of historical context in our minds, we're going to look at some of the Old Testament prophetic passages which point to a saviour. So with the history in mind and with some of the prophetic texts, we're going to understand where they got to. Does that make sense? It sounds like a lot, um, but we're going to go reasonably fast. I'm not going to speak too fast. Husband's going to wave at me if I do that, because I know I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> so quickly, Israel's story. Most of us know the story. We start, um, we're going to start in Egypt where the twelve tribes of Israel uh, become resident after Joseph has saved them from their seven years of slavery, sorry, of, of famine. But 400 years later, they're in oppressive slavery. And God has multiplied Abraham's ancestors, but they're not in their own land. And we read about their cries to God. The same ones. God, are you still faithful? Have you forgotten us? We've been in Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Where are your promises of this promised land and of our freedom? But then in Exodus 3 we read that God hears the cry of his people and he actively responds. And most of us know the story of the Exodus, the dramatic ten plagues and and Moses, God using Moses to lead them out uh, through the Red Sea and Into the promised, well, into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. What's really important to notice here is that God acts as their warrior. He is the stronger of any other God. He is stronger than the Egyptian God. He is stronger than any other Pharaoh. And he is the people's warrior. And Israel's deliverance through the Exodus was really one of the most foundational uh, events that happened for Israel. It's kind of like if you think about formation or founding events for France, it might be Bastille Day. For America, it's Independence Day. Some mark in history where something massive happened and they get their independence. And for Israel, this was the exodus. This was leaving Egypt and God's deliverance in the most remarkable way. And of course, they celebrated that every Passover feast once a year. Now, most importantly, in the wilderness that God has taken them out of Egypt and into, they kind of wander around for 40 years, And we wonder why God didn't take them straight to the promised land. There's a lot of reasons that we're not going to go into today. But one of the reasons is God needs to give them a new identity because they've got Egypt ingrained in their minds so much and so deeply. And there are four components of their identity that uh, God specifically gave them that really are important as they shape their expectations for a Messiah later on. The first is that God called them his firstborn. I don't know if you noticed before in that passage in Isaiah, it said, God has paid double for all of your sins. It sounds a bit harsh, but actually in uh, Israelite culture, the firstborn got double of everything. So they got double inheritance. Therefore, if they uh, played out, they got double punishment. So it's actually firstborn language. It's not any more harsh than, um, that's quite normal for them. So they are called God's firstborn. They are not worthless slaves, which Egypt had taught them, They are his children. The second thing is that God's presence would be with them in a unique way. And this um, we saw through the fire and the smoke in the wilderness, the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant and then in the temple later on. It's an essential defining part of their nationality. God's presence is with them and without God's presence they are like any other nation. Yahweh is is their king. The third thing was land. He promised them land. And we know that land is really important. Uh, It's a defining part of our identity. Our Maori brothers and sisters really understand this at a deep level. Um, And for the Israelites to have their own land was just going to be amazing. And it's part of God's promise to them. They were no longer a bunch of nomadic wanderers or shepherds. They were going to be rooted and placed. And then Torah God gave him a way to live, and we often mistake Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible, as a set of rules, but for them it actually represented freedom from the fear of not knowing how to live, because in the ancient world, uh, in the surrounding cultures at least, the way that you had to act around the gods to worship and to live you, it was all kind of a bit of guesswork, because the gods didn't actually communicate to the people except through the kings. And if you got it wrong, then you had a crop failure or your child died or um, life went disastrously wrong. But God shows he's really different because he actually gives them his law. He gives them Torah. He teaches them how to live so they don't have to live in fear of guessing it wrong anymore. And he actually shows how much he loves them by communicating with them. So these are the four um, parts of their identity, which is really important. And in this speech, as they are about to enter into the promised land, Moses gives them a speech, which is the whole book of Deuteronomy, in case you want to read it. God um, sets out two ways of living. And he says in Deuteronomy, The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day, and you carefully follow them, then you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Remember, they've been at the bottom of the heap for a long time, so this is pretty radical for them. But he also says, See, I set before you life and prosperity, or death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, and then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're about to enter. But if your heart turns away sorry, it's a bit small up here, and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to the other gods and worship them, I declare to you that this day you'll certainly be destroyed and you won't live long in the land that I have taken you into. So the people have been given their identity by God. They've been given warnings and they've been given two parts. You can choose this way and reap the benefits, and prosperity. Or you can walk the other way and face the consequences. It's up to you. It's a free choice. So um, most of us know how the story continues. They eventually enter the land, and we have the reign of King David, who builds the tabernacle, which is a more permanent structure for worship. And then David's son Solomon initially shows promise as another great king of Israel, and he builds the temple, which is a more permanent place of worship to Yahweh. And Israel experienced an amazing period of years where they have peace, prosperity, um, wealth, harmony, and it's really, um, they're known as the Golden Years. They worship Yahweh alone and they're living as God's image bearers in this land. But unfortunately, uh, Solomon's record begins to crack. He allows the worship of other gods to come into the place through his many wives from other nations which was expressly forbidden, and he begins to rely on his own wealth for security rather than on the Lord. And there's a real massive downward spiral from then on, which ends up in a civil war, and we have the splitting of the two parts of Israel, the northern kingdom, which is still confusingly called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. The city of Jerusalem is in the southern part. Now both have a series of kings, and there's lots of weird and wonderful names if you try and get through them. But um, some of them follow the Lord, but most of them don't. We've got a few who you probably have heard of, like Josiah, who tried to reform the people, but they spiraled downwards and allowed the worship of other gods. And some of these Israelites were actually committing sins worse than the Canaanites around them, sacrificing their own children, killing innocent people, and leading the people of Israel into deeper rebellion against God. So some of these kings were pretty wicked, And throughout this time, God sends person after person, prophet after prophet, and judges to call his people back to himself. So hang on guys, you're off track, come back. You're going that way, remember to go this way. Go the way of the truth. Go the way of me. Choose my way. Remember your identity. Remember who I have called you to be. Remember it was me who delivered you from Egypt. And I'm the only God who you should be worshipping. And through these prophets, God sends words of love. And words of warning, but again and it is it again and again and again and sometimes when you read through it you're like, "Oh my gosh, are these people so thick do they not hear God but people have not really changed, and they keep going back to their own way and they chose not to hear him and so finally God has to allow the surrounding nations to invade first the northern kingdom is taken by Syria the southern kingdom hangs on a little bit longer, but then is taken by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and that's where the story of Daniel fits in. And then the city of Jerusalem is surrounded and under siege for three months. No, sorry, I think it's about seven months. And they run out of food so severely that they actually start eating their own children. And eventually the Babylonian army breaks in and the temple is destroyed and the people of Jerusalem are dragged back into captivity and hideous oppression. That's 586 BC. So it's not just Slavery its actually oppression again. So the people of Israel, it's almost like they're back in Egypt, but it's worse. The exodus is reversed, and they're captive to a foreign power. They chose the way of the snake in the garden to be their own gods, to follow the other gods instead of the way of the god. And this is the end of the first temple period. Eventually Babylon defeats Assyria, and then Persia comes in and takes on Syria and former and Babylon, and it's a really dark time because Israel just keeps getting squashed and squashed and squashed, and we see the fulfilment of the warning set before the people back in Moses' speech, the Lord will drive you and your king that you set over you to a nation unknown, to you, all your ancestors, there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, the foreigners who reside amongst you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. And this is exactly what's happened to the people of Israel. And it, what seems like a pretty bizarre twist, but it was actually God's hand. And we don't have time to go into it. But the Persian king Cyrus actually sends a bunch of Israelites back into um, their land, which is known as the second exodus. And they're actually given resources to rebuild the temple walls, the, sorry, the city walls of Jerusalem, and more significantly, the temple So they're under Persian rule, Cyrus is their king, but they're kind of living in their own land. So let's go back to their identity and see where they're at. I'm going to start with land. Most of them are no longer in it. But those who are still in it are being ruled by King Cyrus, who is not really letting them worship as they wanted to worship. They have a temple, but... It's not fulfilled and um, God's presence isn't there which I'm going to talk about in a minute. The scattering of the rest of them throughout all the other surrounding nations is known as the Jewish diaspora, for some of you may have heard that. So they're not in their own land, most of them. Torah, well because they're under oppressive rule in most of the nations, they're not even able to live in the way that God calls them to and many of them are worshipping other foreign gods because that's country that they're now living in. Well, how about the presence of God? Is that still with them? Well, to understand this, I need to tell you two little stories. When the Greek Empire comes to power, which is next, a guy called Antiochus IV imagine calling the child Antiochus Um, It's a pretty crazy name he has such a large ego that he nicknames himself God Manifest Epiphanes is the name he gives himself, God Incarnate he intensely persecutes the Jews, and he performs the ultimate mocking sacrifice. He sacrifices a pig to Zeus in the Jewish temple on the altar that's dedicated to Yahweh. Now for those of you who know Jewish culture, pigs pig are completely unclean, and the fact that there was one um, sacrifice on the altar to Yahweh was just, just would have been absolutely horrendous. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back for some of them, and we have a group called the Maccabees, who lead a revolt in 167 BC, and out of that come the first group of Pharisees and Sadducees. That's where they originally came from. Now can you see why when Jesus turns up and he says, I am God incarnate, the Jewish people look at him like, the last person who said that sacrificed a pig on the altar, and he oppressed our Jewish people. Hey buddy, you've got to be off your tree. And I'm sure that thoughts of crucifixion started to come into their mind then. And when Jesus used kingdom language, in light of their history, it just meant power and oppression. And knowing these points of all these stories in history help us to kind of understand the responses of some of the Jewish people when Jesus came. And the second story is to tell you about the Roman Empire, when they came after the Greeks. And this guy called Pompey rides his horse into the Holy of Holies and is not struck down dead. I don't know if any of you have read Leviticus or remember any of the stories of Leviticus. When God sets out the rules for the temple, and the Holy of Holies is with God's presence as well, so strong that a priest can only go in there once a year to atone for the sins of the people. But even then he had to wear a rope around his waist so that if he got struck down and died because God's presence was so strong in there, then someone could retrieve his body by pulling on the rope. So when Pompey rides his horse into the Holy of Holies and lives to tell the tale, it says something very significant. The presence of God is gone. Yahweh is not with his people. There are no prophets, no voices to challenge the people of God, and God is silent for 400 years. And it just feels like Egyptian slavery all over again, and these people are going, God, where are you? The major defining part of their identity is shredded. God's presence is not with them. They may have the temple, but that's not the important point part of, of worship, is it? Israel is not Israel without Yahweh's presence. And then into stage we get Herod the Great, and most of us know the type of character he was. Um, he was in power when Christ was born. So here we have a nation of people, scattered, persecuted, and totally demoralised. Their identity is completely in question. They no longer have their land, Torah, or the presence of God, and they feel completely abandoned. Are we still the people of God? What about God's promises? Is he still faithful? Have we been so wicked that he's forgotten about us? Does they still care? Is he more powerful than the Roman government? Or well, were Syria and Babylon and Persia more powerful in the end? So, hopefully, now we can kind of begin to understand a little bit of the mindset that the uh, Jewish people were in when Jesus came and why they were so demoralized about it all. And it's important to actually ask why were they waiting for a Messiah anyway? What was it that they held on to as a remnant of hope? That they would eventually be delivered again, that they would one day be re-established as God's people. When we go back to Moses' speech, which most of them were familiar with, most of them knew the Torah, there are some powerful and hopeful words of a second Exodus of God's presence returning to his people after a long time the Messiah to save them. I'm just going to look at a couple of those texts now. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you amongst the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished. To the most distant lands under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that you that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. So, with a text like that in mind, you can kind of understand why the Pharisees were so intent on keeping Torah perfectly. Because if they keep Torah perfectly, God will come back. Here's another one, Isaiah 11. In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and all the islands of the Mediterranean. Basically all the places where the people are scattered. God is going to gather them again. Isaiah 54. For a brief moment I abandon you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. So the Israelites carried this tension of complete despair, but also a deep-seated hope. We find ourselves in that place too, don't we? We're in despair at the state of the world, at the state of our country. But as Christians we also carry a deep-seated hope that God is in control and he is moving and he is working. We just sometimes can't see it. And it's a real tension. We kind of carry them both together in our hearts. Well, what was the response of the people from a day-to-day basis? Well, the majority of Israel were probably just deeply depressed, trying to survive day by day, feeling like their history was just their history, and hope was a very distant glimmer on the horizon. And as I said before, the Pharisees believed that if they could keep Torah perfectly and call all of Israel to keep Torah perfectly, they would escape punishment that was prophesied in Malachi and that God would come back. The zealots took things into their own hands and rebelled against the Roman government, almost as if they were trying to help God bring Rome down. But many hung on to the prophetic messages and waited. They knew they had been unfaithful, but they were hanging on to the promise that God was coming back, and he was faithful, and he would remember them. And if he was faithful, he would act, and it would be like another exodus. It would be like Moses all over again. (coughs) There's a couple of texts I'm going to look at very briefly as we close to see what shaped your expectations of what the Messiah looked like. So, bearing in mind the history plus these texts Isaiah 40, which we heard some of before. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You who bring good news to Zion, lift up your voice with a shout. Do not be afraid. Here is your God. The sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. They're expecting Jesus to rule with a mighty arm. Zechariah 9, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, the bow, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from river. The ends of the earth. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. So there's a specific mention of one of the oppressive empires in their history, Greece. Well God's going to defeat them. That's what (coughs) they and then Psalm hundred and ten The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath, will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So these prophetic texts point to Messiah, that is God's firstborn, a new Israelite king from the house of David. He's going to bring judgment to all the other nations, including Rome. And he's going to be like a Moses-type figure. He's going to deliver them with this firework display of amazing miracles. Based on their history and these prophetic texts and other prophetic texts, God's presence was going to come back to them. Therefore, the temple was going to be fully restored. They were going to be given back their land. They were going to be a free people. And most importantly, Jerusalem was going to be the political center again. And then lastly, Torah. A king of Israel who was coming, a messiah, would reinstate Torah and live it perfectly. As we know, Jesus didn't fulfil these things in the way that they were expecting. He didn't overthrow the Roman government. And as far as the Pharisees could see, he kept breaking Torah left, right and centre. The Holy of Holies was not filled with the presence of Yahweh as they hoped. Instead, the curtain was torn in two. Remember from top to bottom when Jesus died? They didn't get rule of Jerusalem back. They remained scattered throughout theirs. And surrounding lands, and the Torah was not reinstated as law. But as we see, and as we will see over the next few weeks, Jesus did far more than they ever expected, and we're going to be unpacking that. He did re-establish the temple, but in a way they could never have imagined. In our hearts, he was a king. He was the king of the universe. They never expected God to come himself. They didn't expect a Messiah to be fully divine and fully human at at the same time. They were expecting a prophet of God, but they did not expect God himself to come. Jesus wasn't interested in saving them from the Roman government. And they were obviously quite disappointed about that. He was interested in something far more important. A far bigger picture was at play. He was interested in saving them from themselves from the fallen sinful nature. Jesus was ushering in a new creation, a whole new redeemed world. He was part of a much bigger story, and they did not expect that at all. And this should give us great hope too as we think about this big picture, and we're going to unpack more of that bigger story over the next four weeks. I'm going to give us just a moment to reflect as the worship team comes up to play quietly. Do you identify with Israel's story? Does it help you to understand Jesus better? Is Jesus who you thought he was? Or do you wrestle with his faithfulness in your life?